0: I stopped drinking only because of you. And as a fun challenge to do the January dry challenge, then it became six months. And I thought, oh, this is cool. I could last for six months and then I drank again. And then I tried a second time for fun to quit um, just to, you know, take a break. And, and now I think it is inadvertently permanent not by design, but just by habit. So in the last 12 to 14 months, I've had one glass of wine and that's it. And I don't think I will have another.
1: The Tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support.
2: Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Goron. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. We believe it's really, really hard to change your drinking alone. So we're all about community. We're about keeping each other on track. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. Here's a lady from one of our WhatsApp groups. I joined Tribe Sober in June 2020, after years of trying to either moderate or ditch the booze for good. I could never get it right, but after joining the Tribe, with the inspiration and the continuous support, I only wish I'd joined sooner. Being with Tribe Sober made me see that I didn't have a problem, but rather an opportunity to create a life I didn't want to escape from. It took me a whole year and 84 day ones, but I never gave up, and the Tribe never gave up on me. I'm happy to say I'm close to four months sober and loving my sober life and continue to grow with my tribe. Thank you, Tribe Sober, for saving me from the toxic relationship I had with alcohol. I don't ever see myself going back. So if you want to join our tribe and connect with others on this path, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. So let's get to my guest. This week, I'm thrilled to be in conversation with broadcaster, political analyst and author, Eusebius MacKaiser. Eusebius needs little introduction to South Africans, as he's hosted a three-hour daily radio show for years. In fact, he's been facilitating a much-needed national dialogue here in South Africa. So let's have a listen. I wanted to kick off Eusebius just by saying a big thank you, because, you know, you had me on your show so many times. And not only did that enable me to to reach so many people and create a community, but it also gave me kind of confidence. And I'd been wanting to podcast for ages. And I swear it was because, you know, I had confidence after being on your show a few times. And do you remember once you said to me, that I had a nice voice, that it was kind of calming. It wasn't like those rah-rah motivational speakers. <laughs> and I was really chuffed about that. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do it. And so I started this podcast on my fifth Soberversary, May the 23rd. And I think you're episode 28. So, oh, so I'm fantastic. loving it, actually. I'm following,
0: it. I'm following the community digitally. And I am enormously proud of the impact of your work, Um, Not just the meaning that it provides for you, which I know is enormous, but also many of the folks that you and I met um, on the one or two where I've been, and obviously as the facilitator, you are present at every one of your workshops. I I see many of them online and their lives are, are transformed. So congratulations on the impact that you've had.
2: Oh, Thank you. Well, well, what's so wonderful these days, I mean, it's been five years now. And some of those guys that got sober with us kind of early on, I always imagined that people would come, they get sober and then they go away again, but they're sticking around. And what they're doing now is they, they've become sober buddies, as we call them. And they work one-on-one with, uh, with new people, you know, just not as qualified counsellors or anything, but just as someone that's been through this and, you know, providing a bit of support and accountability so it feels like it's a sustainable thing that's that's growing so it's yeah I feel very blessed to be doing this so I have to ask you this question because people ask me you know I don't know if they think I'm your agent or something but they keep saying where is Eusebius what's he doing is he all right (laughs) so please satisfy our curiosity
0: yeah so what is Eusebius up to it's a I like the question and I'm humbled by the question and I also find the question annoying. And i tell you why I've got discombobulated responses to it. What's beautiful about the question is that it is an incredibly generous affirmation of, presumably, the work I did on radio. And it's also an affirmation of radio as a medium, which is a beautiful thing when we have so many media that compete for attention. So that's what's stunning about the question and very generous about the question. What's slightly annoying and sad about the question is that um, there are many ways in which one can engage. I take my writing seriously. I have been writing consistently for the Mail and Guardian, a bi-weekly essay I am very active, particularly on Facebook, less so on Twitter, and I've just started um, a wonderful project with my former colleague, um, Joanne Joseph, which is a deal and relationship we have with exclusive books and with a number of publishers uh, to proselytize the love uh, and the beauty of books and reading. Uh, in South Africa. There are many such projects or many platforms and we are adding to it as broadcasters and as published authors. So so I have been doing other things. I do political risk analysis. Many corporates and clients that I work with who want to understand the state of the state on a private basis and ask questions they may not want to ask publicly that goes into their business risk analysis, they might reach out to me. And then, of course, I do a lot of work as a moderator um, as a facilitator and also as an MC variously. So those are the things that I've been doing. And then I've got one or two broadcast related projects in the pipeline that I can't speak about yet, but which hopefully will come come online next year if all work out. So I'm not lost to to radio, but I, I hope as with your podcast success, Janet, that people will accept that it's 2020, 2021, and that although radium is a, radio is a warm and intimate medium, there are many other ways for us to connect, including in the blogosphere, through podcasting and on social media.
2: Absolutely. Well, that's, that's awesome to hear that. So tell me about the thing with Joanne. Is, it, is that going to be a, a radio show or...? We've had three
0: episodes already. I'll tag you on the Facebook oh, okay. link. They yeah. call It's called Cover to Cover, and we basically just talk about books and literature. Uh, the first one was a bumper Christmas edition. The second one focused on food journalism and cookbooks in particular, where we interviewed chefs and foodies and food critics. And the last for one for December focused on children's literature. And uh, we aim to have three or four of these shows out per month and then we just tweet the links, we put it on Facebook and exclusive books have been very, very good in making sure that we disseminate it uh, as widely as possible.
2: Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, we must get the link to that and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, yeah, you'll, you'll have to do an episode on Quitlit. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we do that.
0: Oh. Yeah, then I'll have you back in interviewing mode. Definitely, yeah, we'll yeah. do that.
1: You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober.
2: So I wanted to ask you, Eusebius, have you ever thought of doing a podcast?
0: I have, and I might at some point. I'm going to have to borrow your experiences and other people's. Um, there's so many people doing amazing podcasts, and people don't know about it, that I've been skeptical about penetration levels in South Africa. So, yeah, I'm afraid I'm out of my depth, despite being in media. And I've got one or two technical folk that will be working with me in, in the weeks ahead on a, on a couple of projects that I have, again, I'll announce them soon-ish uh, at the beginning of next year. Uh, podcasting is one of them, but I often wonder where the podcasters in South Africa get the appropriate returns on the investment with the digital divide, data problems, data connectivity and all that jazz. So I've thought about it. I've just been skeptical, but maybe you'll persuade me that it's worth it.
2: Yeah, Oh I think I think I'll be able to I'm going to work on you. So um yeah I think you'll you'd find I mean they say that there's so many podcasts these days. I mean I think there's about a million. But if you look at how many blogs there are, you know, there's probably mm-hmm. a billion. Um but but the thing is, if you started a podcast, you've already got your community. And that's where I was able to kind of have a flying start because I was able to tell my community, this is what I'm doing. Do you think it's a good idea? And they were going, yes, go for it. Whereas I think if you start and you, you just come out of nowhere and you, know, you get your mum to download it and your auntie to download it, and that's about it. <laughs> and apparently the average podcaster, they – they start something and, you know, maybe they do two, three episodes and then nobody listens and they decide it's it's not worth the effort. And that, then they just give up. And those people are included in that million podcasts. So there's plenty of kind of dead podcasts out there. Okay. So, you know, someone like yourself, you'd get – I think uh, I've got a kind of vision for you. Like, have you heard of Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan Experience? Uh-uh. But he does a three-hour podcast every morning. I'm not suggesting oh, wow. you do that. But uh, – and, and he he's quite controversial, but he has so many, you know, interesting guests and the chat that's on there. And he gets – listen to this – he gets 200 million downloads a month. Wow. <laughs> so South Africa needs art. We need a Joe Rogan. Look,
0: there's, a, there's, a, there's a niche discursively, which is, again, why – I really am humbled by people missing me on radio. We have many excellent reporters, we have many journalists that have skills that I do not have and do not want to acquire. For example, some great investigative journalists. But the gap that we seem to have is precisely that you what you're alluding to Janet, which is to frame and jump into sharp debate. South Africans are highly opinionated. But to frame debates with, you know, the the classical quality of a Tim Sebastian hard talk quality, we don't have that in South Africa and we've got to be honest about it. And I think people miss that. What I liked the most about my radio show was the first hour, which was the open line debate where you don't know what will happen, but I could draw on my debate skill and training um, and my studies in logic And force myself and my listeners um, to push the quality of their reasoning, and not so much to persuade you to become a liberal egalitarian, although I think the world would be a better place if we were all liberal, but rather to get people to accept that having a viewpoint is not an achievement. Having a viewpoint that you can explain and account is far more important, and that's missing. And I think if you have a podcast that aimed at that, regardless of the subject matter, I mean, there's there's something I want to debate with you on, on sobriety in the next couple of minutes where I've d- disagreed with you quietly during COVID. Um, the subject matter doesn't matter. It can be about the environment, fashion, politics, whatever. But I think South Africans are hungry for high quality analytical discussion.
2: I do too, and and I think you can provide that. And and the great thing for you is you you have complete independence. You know, no bosses breathing down your neck saying, "Oh, you know, you were too too hard on that listener," as I imagine it used to happen sometimes. <laughs> you can uh, you can really go for it. So think about that. We'll we'll continue the dialogue. All right.
0: <laughs> no, we will. We will.
2: Okay, so I guess as this podcast is called "Goodbye to Alcohol," and we're 13 minutes in, we better talk about alcohol. We should. Yeah. <laughs> so, why don't you kick off by uh, talking us through your story? You know, your relationship with alcohol. I know it's nothing like as hectic as my history with alcohol, well,
0: but it's- know, to be honest, I think there's an element of it that I probably can't speak about publicly yet which I'll tell you about um, in person next time we are together. Um, But I'll tell you the broad story. Um, I think there are very few South Africans that have a casual relationship with alcohol. So I never drank in high school. I wasn't experimental. I was a very shy kid. I was also a goody two-shoes. I didn't drink in first year of university. And fun aside, my biggest fear wasn't that I might develop a toxic relationship with alcohol or that alcohol is sinful. My biggest fear is that I might hit on a guy that I find attractive if I was drunk (laughs) because the one thing I knew about alcohol secondhand is that people who are drunk – Speak their mind. And I knew secretly that I was attracted to men. And my biggest fear is that uh, the quickest way to come out of the closet is to get drunk. So I was shit scared of getting drunk because I thought being drunk is going to reveal my sexual orientation, uh, which of course is entirely true. But once I came out, um, that reason fell away. And then in second year, quite nerdishly, I belonged to the Rhodes University Chess Club. We played against a local team from a bar called Champs and we beat them and we won a crate of beer and every member of the chess club were drinking the trophy. And so I participated, particularly no longer being scared of my sexual orientation. So between winning the crate of beer and not being scared of hitting on men, that was the first time I got tipsy, and I absolutely loved it. And then I thought, I said to my first, remember exactly the first time I got tipsy, saying to my friends, why the hell didn't you tell me how amazing it is to be tipsy? It is the most wonderful feeling. Cut a long story short, it's very hard to be a Rhodes University student and drink casually. From there, you you binge. You become a binge drinker. Uh, we, we, we the, the slogan for Rhodes University is where leaders learn, but we jokingly, and it's not a joke, we jokingly always used to say Rhodes University, uh, where leaders drink. And we used to pride ourselves on winning boat races, which is a drinking game, against Stellenbosch and competing with Stellenbosch to be two of the highest per capita consumption campuses uh, in the world. Uh, and we used to love that kind of stat. So I doubled my body weight and I, I drank like a road student, which means binge drinking, um, throughout my 20s. So I spent my 20s and my 50s completely um, wasted. Um, fortunately, I was so competitive academically that it didn't cost my degrees and I passed and I passed well and I loved philosophy. So there weren't major downsides. But now that I'm 41, there's one, one thing in particular that I can't speak about yet um, publicly that wouldn't have happened but for the fact that, that I was drunk. So when you are drunk, your choices, or, or let me use I sentences, um, there were many, many things that I've done, Jen, um, Janet, which I wouldn't have done if I was sober. So there is a cost. I mean, I know your, your, your goodbye to alcohol letter and both the fun memories and the downsides, and the same is true of, of me. I've compromised my health as a result um, of, of, of drinking. To take another example that I wrote about in my first book, um, having unprotected sex, for example, um, with, with a filmmaker who is HIV positive. I wrote about that in, in in my first book. That happened under conditions of drunkenness. That's not to say you can't take bad decisions when you are sober. Obviously, you can. There are many sober people who make imprudent choices. But I now look back, and it's very clear to me that the majority of my regretful decisions happened when I when I was when I was drunk, and and there's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, but I'm not an alcoholic. Um, even though I don't think that alcoholism should be stigmatized, I stopped drinking only because of you. And as a fun challenge to do the January dry challenge, then it became six months. And I thought, oh, this is cool. I could last for six months and then I drank again. And then I tried a second time for fun to quit um, just to, you know, take a break. And, And now I think it is inadvertently permanent, not by design, but just by habit. So in the last 12 to 14 months, I've had one glass of wine, and that's it, and I don't think I will have another. And the only reason I had that glass of wine is that I saw a very dear friend of mine from Oxford University, Taye, who is absolutely gorgeous, and she and I were reminiscing and... I allowed myself to to have a glass of wine. Don't regret it because I'm not a I don't have an addictive personality in relation to alcohol. But um, the next time I meet someone from Oxford that I haven't seen in 10, 15, 20 years, I won't be tempted to to to, to have a glass. I will be strong enough to tell them I don't want to have a glass. <laughs> um, but in her, in her case, it was a beautiful glass that I enjoyed. And that's the only bit of alcohol that I've had in the last 14 months or so.
2: Wow, that's wonderful. I must admit, I'm always, well, not always now, but I used to in the early days, check out your Facebook page. You're always posting lovely pictures of you and your partner out and about. And I see him with his wine and you're with your water. And I think, yep, it's certainly lasting.
0: <laughs> yeah. And do you know the journey in terms of navigating social space? I think The lockdown period helps for anyone who wanted to try because we are all constrained socially and the curfew helps. If you get annoyed with drunk people out and about at a restaurant, a pub or a club, um, there's no pressure to stay on until two o'clock in the morning because everyone has to be home by midnight and now by 11 o'clock. So that helps as well. So I think this has been a great year for anyone who wanted to experiment with, with, with sobriety.
2: Yeah, it takes a lot of the pressure off. But um, I know you've got very strong views, actually, on why it's not our job to make other people feel comfortable about our drinking. Talk to us about that a little bit.
0: Alcohol, as you have said, and rightly so, and I've repeated this myself on many platforms, is the only drug we have to justify not taking again a couple of days ago in a casual context i was at dinner and someone wanted to know why i am not drinking alcohol and i playfully said to him a friend of mine can you tell everyone else here at the dinner party why you are no longer schnaffing coke and that was the end of the conversation I don't have to justify why I'm not taking ecstasy, why I'm not taking magic mushrooms. So why the fuck must I justify not being drunk? It's the strangest thing. Alcohol is so habitual that we don't think twice about how normative drinking actually is. Just an hour ago, I was reading this beautiful book that has just won the Booker Prize. And there's a scene in it, and it's set in Glasgow. And it deals with addiction as one of its big themes. And it makes the point, this cab driver, of how many of these men in Glasgow work their butts off and then take their wages and then go on a on a pub crawl and only the leftover money is what they go home with that then has to be divvied up for food for the week. But as I'm reading that, I was obviously anticipating our conversation, Janet, and thinking to myself, Isn't it crazy that we live in a world in which it is perfectly socially acceptable to work hard at the mines or in a factory for a whole week as part of the working-class, battling capitalism, and then you go and spend all your money at the pub, and no one is going to judge you. If we did the same and took that money but went to go and buy ecstasy tablets or whatever kids have these days, we would be judged. So there's this weird anomalous attitude towards alcohol that simply does not make sense. And so I refuse to explain myself because the burden should be on the person making alcohol drinking compulsory to provide an argument for why it's compulsory to be drunk. The burden is not on the sober person to explain why they should opt out. It is right up there with badgering a vegetarian friend to explain why they don't want to have meat.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's madness, isn't it? I think it's, you know, maybe because it's a legal drug. I mean, it's definitely a drug. And when you think, you know, you were there at university and... It's, it's kind of foisted upon you, isn't it? Every day for years and years. And and then we some of us, you know, 20%, not you, but I'm in mean, that 20%, we do become dependent, we become addicted, and then people kind of frown at us and go, ooh, you've got a problem. And it's, it's very hard to, to resist for some of us to to not become dependent. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think many people don't realize, I mean, they all throw up their hands in horror, oh, hard drugs, what a dreadful thing. But hard drugs, you know, the the people that they kill, it's minuscule compared with alcohol. There's there's three million alcohol related deaths in the world every single year, which you know compare that with COVID, and it's uh, it's massive. But it's I sometimes feel like we're living in this kind of huge conspiracy.
0: We do, and and I don't mind if people drink, and and I, I mean, I do want you and I to to debate. An aspect around that that I was alluding to earlier, um, I'll, I'll tell you where you and I parted ways on something during COVID. But it's one thing to to say drinking is permissible, and it's something else to pressurize your friend to drink, and it's the latter that I that I have a, that I have a problem with. Um. You know, you, you you can have your drink, you can get drunk. I'm not gonna moralize about it. But to pressurize someone else to explain why they're not drinking is 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 gross and unacceptable. And and sometimes people go a step further. Not only do they demand that we should explain ourselves to not drinking or no longer drinking, um, they also think that you are trying to to put yourself on a pedestal You think you are janet you know are you like the deputy babe deputy jesus so 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 not only do you have to explain why you're not drinking you're also accused of trying to virtue signal
2: but yes i mean i would never judge anybody how could i i mean i was drinking ridiculous amounts for decades you know but but we do get looked at and think oh you know who do you think you are not drinking kind of thing it's crazy yeah all right, let's 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 have this debate then. What have we disagreed on? I, I
0: agreed with the members of World Without, World Without Wine community, which is Janet's website. You probably know it if you're listening to this podcast. If you're listening to the podcast and you don't know it, you should go to worldwithoutwine.com. There was a wonderful debate there about whether or not, and if so, to what extent, there should be a ban on the sale of alcohol with different levels of lockdown. And I thought that you were too paternalistic, maternalistic, I suppose would be the correct, correct word, uh, in your attitude. And it's a philosophical view that I have more than a public health or an empirical view. I think if we do the costs, calculation, your argument has pull. But for me, there's also a question of, which isn't just an economic or a public health question, a question of what kind of society do I want to live in normatively, culturally, idealistically, if I could design a society from scratch? And I I have to say, and I suspect I can persuade you to agree with me in part, uh, not just because you like me, but because I, I think, on reflection, surely your your view is softer than 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 how you articulated it uh, on the online um, pages. That we want to live in a society in which people behave the way you did in the early part of your life. We want to live in a society in which I made some of the regretful choices that I made while I was drunk, for example. I actually do. Um, that is part of my liberal, experimental, pluralistic society that, that I think is the kind of society that we should design from scratch if we could start a society from scratch. I don't want to give people a shopping list of things that they can and can't do beyond the obvious things. You can't smack your CBS just because you want to. I mean, there are basic moral precepts that we all accept, right? Um, but I think we should also give people permission maximally to live different kinds of life forms and do different kinds of things. And some of it will include aesthetically and also in terms of our well-being, choices and decisions that, that we live out, um, that will be nasty. That you might end up at the age of fifty with one eye. You might end up at the age of forty um, dealing with cancer. And, and I'm not trying to be morbid or callous, but 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 that is just a philosophical conviction that I have. And I thought that your position around this was was overly overly restrictive. Um, and as a sidebar, and I'll pause after this. I also thought it was unstrategic. Uh, Many of the people that had gone on a beautiful journey with with you, um, I think suddenly went, oh, I've been on board with Project World Without Wine, but now I'm being asked to sign up to Big Brother.
1: You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab that's www.tribesober.com
2: okay i'll tell you from my point of view uh, i think that that must have been in the very early days of covid when we were all even more petrified than we are now <laughs> and i was just i was just so worried about the the health workers you know and the mm. um it it, we have the same worry in the UK, as I'm sure you know, and all the, the early talks. We're all protect the NHS, protect the NHS. Mm-hmm. And once I've seen the stats, you know, of how the emergency wards just fill up day after day of, you know, people because of alcohol abuse, I thought we need an emergency measure here. Let's just... You know, ban alcohol for a month and let the hospitals prepare for this influx of people because, you know, you, you or I could easily have been turned away from a hospital because there, there were no beds. And this might be a way to, to help us ease into this crisis. But mm. I, I never um, mm. was recommending alcohol ban forever. I mean, that would be ridiculous because <laughs> they've tried that before and it didn't work. Mm. But I, I just saw. It. I thought we're in an emergency here. We need emergency measures. Mm. But I, I, you know, and I certainly got all the grief I probably deserve from uh, articulating <laughs> it clumsily, you know, plenty of trolls, even more than usual. <laughs> I understand about the job losses and the economy. But you know that is another issue that the much of South African economy and much of the global economy is kind of built, you know, on the fact that people
0: that's drink right. alcohol. That's right. But you know, that's well, I thought how the it position is, was but. was coherent. I also thought that it, particularly as an emergency measure, articulation, as you say, I think it's persuasive as well. Um, I was just worried about. Um, And I'm going to exaggerate a little bit just to make the point. I'm always worried about authoritarian creep. So I trust you, if you were an MEC or a minister, to come up with a temporary measure. I am scared when politicians experiment with illiberal measures and start getting used to at eight o'clock in the evening, having a national broadcast, not followed by questions from journalists, and simply dictating to us what the rules are for the next four weeks. And once they habituate themselves in that kind of way, you know, you you slowly get into anti-democratic state behavior. For me, that was the bigger issue. Um, I know the pandemic was the most important immediate concern and making sure that ICU beds are available and the role of drinking and trauma and therefore in trauma units. I, I never thought about it as clearly um, as I have this year because of the pandemic. So those stats frightened me as much as they did you. But it also frightened me how one or two politicians um, who don't like alcohol for for more moral reasons rather than public health reasons, were very excited at the idea of a ban. And I'm always wary about the reasons for a position. A good position from poor premises can set a precedent that will come back to haunt us two, three years from now.
2: Yeah, yeah, I do get the authoritarian creep thing, and you know, it's it's frightening to. I, I hate these press conferences that have no chance for the journalists to ask questions. That's not a press conference; that's mm-hmm. a, an edict. But so, you know, yeah, let's that's good, that's I mean, I want to get back
0: to the main business of 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 what's been, you know, the what's been the upsides of of having had only one glass of wine over the last year, fourteen months. And I'm sort of pausing because some of the upsides are also difficulties. But again, philosophically, they're important difficulties to embrace. But they may not always feel like it in the moment. You know better than I and other sober buddies in the community know this as well. That when you are sober, you can't bypass your psychology. If you have anxiety, if you worry about your weight, about your body, if you have an illness, chronic condition, pill fatigue, relationships that you are worried about, I don't know, maybe your sex drive isn't what it used to be, you can't self-medicate. And in a weird way, sobriety can make you anxious. So it's double-edged, but on the other hand, it's also a beautiful thing to be very lucid even in experiencing your full pain. But there's something about that clarity that I think makes for a qualitatively better experience of your of yourself.
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I remember you wrote a lovely blog for me, a guest blog a while ago. I'll put it in the show notes. I think it was, you called it Reflections of a Sober Diary or something. It Mm. was really good. And you talked about anxiety and you know this issue you've just mentioned. And in the blog, you said, getting drunk is not therapy. (laughs)
0: Yeah, we self-medicate all the time. We think we drink for fun only. But the truth is that especially um, the older we get, uh, we convince ourselves that we drink for pleasure but a lot of, a lot of our drinking is secretly motivated by a desire to self medicate
2: yeah that that was my warning sign cuz you know hindsight is a wonderful thing but i can look back now and think okay my 20s and my 30s socializing a lot drinking a lot the old binge now and again but you know nothing hectic but 40s and 50s it was all about getting home from work opening the wine drinking a bottle of wine to manage my stress, to calm down. And uh, that, that was when the problems set in. So I absolutely agree with that. And I think that's a real warning sign. Yeah. Yeah. Have you had a lot more time since you stopped drinking? You, I can't
0: remember the last time I slept late over the weekend. In fact, now it's unremarkable. It's only interesting at the beginning because now it's obviously habit every day is the same in terms of when I wake up. Whereas when you are drinking, you might wake up late on a Saturday on a Sunday because you didn't sleep. You passed out. And when you pass out, your body's not completely rested. And the wonderful thing about having more time isn't just that you have more energy. It's that you can do more, more things. Yeah. The only downside is that you need to plan better. The one thing that alcohol gives you, and I think you mentioned this in your soberversary letter, is that it also makes you lazy because your entire weekend is choreographed for you. And now, for example, I sometimes do weight straining at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock on a Friday. Now, previously, there's no way in hell I would do that because I'll be having sundowners. But the other cool thing about sundowners, if you are drinking, is that your entire evening is sorted out for you. I mean, when I was a student, by two o'clock on a Friday, we know exactly as a bunch of friends in digs what the rest of the weekend looks like. So not you've got more time when you are sober, but initially you have to learn to do things, whether it is gardening, whether it's surprisingly going to that spinning class on a Saturday morning, not because you want to be a fitness bunny, but because you're going to do something with the time or to go and get your hair cut. You don't have to squeeze it in after work during the week. Now suddenly you have Saturday morning or Sunday morning free. And it's it's really interesting, again, how your consciousness is heightened because your brain is not foggy. And one of the things that, that comes into sharp focus is the fact that you have time and you need to decide what to do with it.
2: And I remember you asking me, Eusebius, in the early days, you said, oh, I'm a bit worried about my creativity. Will it be affected um, if I stop drinking? And I think I reassured you it wouldn't, but I didn't really know.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm not the only one. Every creative worries about it, about it, unless you never drank and you've always been creative. You know, I mean I've I've had a conversation with my friend Rebecca about this as well. You you wonder whether you can still be, if you are a funny writer, whether you can be funny when you are sober. Because very often it is when you are tipsy, when you appear to be funnier. Um I had this conversation with Joanne Joseph actually in one of our episodes that I will send send you. And You learn other prompts, Janet. In my case, a big prompt for creativity is music. I can't write at my best unless I feel intensely, whether it be melancholy or whether it be joy, whatever the emotion might be. I'm at my best creatively when I am emoting sharply. And one of the upsides of being drunk is that it's good for drunk for drink. When you are sad and hungover, you can, the words can just pour out. Some of the best parts of my first and third book in particular were when I was sad while being completely drunk in my computer. Now, if I play the right kind of song, the words can pour out. And it doesn't have to be sad, by the way something as ridiculous as Sure Belief uh, that I wrote about on Facebook the other day. It was the first song that played when I went into a gay club for the first time. This was in 1998 or 1999. And I went to Bronx in Cape Town on Somerset Street, Somerset Road. And the first song that was playing was Sure Belief. So if I want to write an essay on homosexuality, on the club scene or whatever, you just play that song and it's a memory prompt, for example. Casey Chapman does the same to me. Nina Simone does the same to me. So I do need a trigger for my creativity to be heightened. But you simply find other ways of doing it. And in my case, it's music.
2: Wow, that's so interesting because that music actually uh, touches several parts of our brain, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So just as alcohol, you know, touched parts of your brain now, now the music's doing that. And yeah, indeed that's what it's all about, isn't it? Finding navigating sobriety by finding other other things instead of using the booze to do it. So, Eusebius, this podcast is going to be broadcast on the 27th of December. Now, because you're my uh, Christmas gift to my community, you see. (laughs) That's
0: that's very generous. (laughs) generous. But
2: apart from... I hope it is
0: a gift. But also, I'm delighted we're broadcasting it now, um, because this is also when people are most triggered to fall off the wagon. And when the pressure is also heightened. So it's a really interesting time to have this conversation. You know, the economic crisis, the public health crisis, the uniqueness of the pandemic. So uh, despite what I said earlier in our conversation, that it's been a great year to experiment with sobriety, I'm afraid the opposite is also true. I should actually temper my, my wording slightly. It's probably also a great year to, to be triggered into backsliding.
1: Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at, janet at Tribesober.com. That's janet, J-A-N-E-T, at tribesober.com, and we'll send you an invitation.
2: yeah and indeed really developing a a problem in the first place because of lockdown and the alcohol restrictions many people went out and they bought lots of booze so they had more booze than usual in the house and then the stress and the homeschooling and everything and many people have have really ramped up the drinking and people have got in touch and told me that so Mm. you know there's there's a lot of stress out there but, uh, but I was hoping that by the 27th of December, um, people will have maybe had enough of the eating and the drinking of the festive season. And they'll be thinking about, let's hope 2021 is going to be better for everybody than the last year. And maybe they'll try a bit of sobriety to kick it off. So I'm hoping people will sign up for dry January as the, the days of me coming on your show, talking about it, and immediately getting 10 grand for Earth Child. <laughs> Sadly, they're over. <laughs> so we're having to pivot and find other ways. But it, we've got 10,000 so far. But That's 50,000 to go.
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. So, That's fantastic. Well, I mean, I, I I hope this conversation reaches many people who would like to experiment with changing their relationship with alcohol that does not mean you're an alcoholic and if you want to do so I think the dry January challenge is fantastic because 30 days doesn't sound like a lifetime and it isn't it's feasible and you get fantastic support support that has helped my dad it's helped me getting daily encouraging quotes and little practical tips for how to stay sober for 30 consecutive days. Um, and it can kick off at various stages. It doesn't have to be the first of January. Um, so it's definitely worth signing up for the Dry January Challenge. And the other beautiful thing about sobriety in general, Janet, is you've experienced, not only is this a career for you now, doing the workshops, but um, the opportunity to do good And to be magnanimous is fantastic. We often think we don't have time or as much time as you ideally want to impact communities. But the truth of the matter is that we're too drunk to make time. And you're not trying to make a profit out of dry January. The money that can go towards helping Children that otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity to take part in an activity as stunning as yoga will have that opportunity. Um, And if you're listening to this and you think that yoga is cheesy, let me just share with you one story that is a chilling story that has stuck with me. At least one of the kids that have been through the yoga classes as a result of this project reported to Janet and her colleagues that when they were still in the yoga class, it was the first time they ever were sitting in silence because ordinarily on the flats, Cape Flats, there are bullets flying around, there's noise in the house, there's noise at school. And those of us who are privileged and middle class can afford silence because we buy it in the burbs. I can literally hear every bird chirping outside. But for some children who go to yoga class, besides the physiological benefits, at a psychosocial level, it is a crime against society, against them from society, that for many of the children... That is the only opportunity they have to sit in silence. I mean, it's it, it's mind it's mind boggling. So we can take these activities for granted. So we can opt out of them. We can laugh at them. Those of us who enjoy them can opt in or find alternatives. But for for many underprivileged children, this can literally be life changing.
2: Yeah, and for many of them, it's it. They just love it, you know, and it's the start of a lifelong practice. And and one little boy said to me a bit like you know your story there. He said, "This is the only time that I dare to close my eyes." And I thought, wow, you know, it's uh, Isn't
0: it, and yeah, what's what the uh, only space where you feels safe.
2: Yeah. And that's what yoga seems to do for them. At least, you know, that one hour a week, they, they can carve out a quiet space. So it's not just about postures, although they love the postures as well. I've, I've watched them in a class. It's, uh, they just love great. it. And, they, no, and we they
0: couldn't shy away from that either because the learning to change your relationship with your body, including your comportment, is critically important to living well. So, quite apart yeah. from the beauty of a child from a gang-ridden area feeling safe enough to close their eyes for a couple of minutes, it is important to learn to be aware of your full physical body, including posture and how you comport and everything else that goes with yoga.
2: Yeah, and how to look after one's body and how to eat properly. You know, they, the they cover all that stuff. Yeah, breathing. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine that kind of environment. You don't breathe very often. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, Earth Child, they've been going for 14 years now. And what's so beautiful, it made me think of our kind of sober buddies. But the kids that were with them from the very beginning, say they started yoga at six six um, years old, you know, they've stayed, they've car- carried on doing their yoga. And some of them, uh, Earth Child now have a young leaders program. And then they join Earth Child as one of The leaders, because Jana, you know, who's white South African, she very much wants to hand over to local people because they uh, they very much set the tone and they're fantastic role models for the whole community. So I think Jana's, you know, so clever and uh, her vision was just amazing. I sent you the podcast I did with her last week. You've probably not had a chance to listen to it, but it's, uh, she tells her story, you know, how she had the, the vision for this thing, uh, this project, and she set it up in 2007 and here we are, it's still Great. just growing. So no, I uh,
0: really support thing. it and I, I, hope, I hope folks will sign up for Dry January. And that they will also contribute what they can towards this um, this this initiative.
2: So there, you heard me talking to the awesome Eusebius MacKaiser. As usual, I'm going to pull out a few points from that conversation. Eusebius explained that, like many of us, he began drinking at college, and he loved his first experience of being tipsy. And after that, there was no stopping him. He binge drank during his twenties and thirties. And although he was not an alcoholic, he did reflect that most of his regretful decisions happened when he was under the influence. I can certainly identify with that statement. We discuss the fact that as we get older, we tend to self-medicate with alcohol. We try to convince ourselves that it's just for fun, but in fact it's much more about masking our anxiety and dealing with stress. When Eusebius signed up for our dry January challenge, he didn't intend to stop drinking permanently. That had never crossed his mind. But in fact, he was really surprised to discover that his dry January somehow stretched right out until June. And then the following year, he signed up again for dry January and found himself going a whole year without a drink. Well, I think he mentioned one glass of wine. So that's an amazing transformation just from two dry Januarys. Well done, Eusebius. So whether the dry January challenge just provides you with a a healthy break from the booze, or whether it triggers a permanent lifestyle change like it did with Eusebius, it's really worth signing up. And of course, your donation will enable a child to discover the joy and peace that yoga can bring. It costs just 250 rand or 12 pounds or 16 dollars to sponsor a child for a whole year of yoga tuition. So please check out the show notes for this episode because there you're going to find a link to the three books that Eusebius has written, plus his blog that he wrote for our website and his current YouTube show, which he hosts with Joanne Joseph. It's called Cover to Cover. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and share and I'll see you next time.
1: Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.